um, so if you have your Bible and they're open to Revelation, we're going to begin this morning. The nice thing about Revelation is that the first chapter really is a good introduction to the entire book. And as we go through this first chapter, we're just going to hit on a couple of things that are going to kind of give you an idea of how we're going to go through it and some of the things we're going to talk about and some of what makes Revelation a difficult thing for people to take on. Um, I'll never forget the first time I read it when I was a new Christian and I was reading through the Bible and I was being told uh, that the Bible is literally true. And I was like, okay, then I'm going to read the Bible uh, and believe that everything I read here is literally true. And as I got to Revelation, I was just like, what is going on here? Uh, it, it, you know, if this is literally true, this is the most terrifying thing I've ever heard of. And I also remember thinking, I'm not sure how much I want to go to heaven anymore if it's going to be this scary and intense and crazy because it was just a whole, a whole other thing. And so I did what most people do. I stopped about halfway through and, uh, and then I just kind of like never really went back to it for many years. And I heard about it a lot. I read books that were written in popular culture on it. Um, I heard sermons about it. I heard from well-known speakers and people that uh, were very uh, good at, at teaching on it. But I spent very little time in the book of Revelation itself. Um, which I think is a huge mistake that most of us are probably guilty of in our Christian walk. And so I'm excited that, that through this, we will get to walk through this together and understand and see what Revelation tells us and why it's so important. So we're going to just start right off. We're going to jump right in, and we're going to go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. And um, like I said, we're just going to kind of work our way through this chapter, and then I'm going to point out a couple of things at the, at the end. I'll have a couple of points for you guys. The Revelation to John, and we're going to read the first, actually, two verses, and then I'm going to stop. Um, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So we'll stop there for one second. You know, second word we read here in the book, revelation. That's why it's called revelation. I know I'm blowing your minds, right? How could you have done this without me, right? Revelation is, um, is a word that when translated to the Greek is apocalyptus. And what this word means is apocalypsis. What this means is a revealing of something, an unveiling of something, a pulling back of a curtain, you might think, to show what's really going on behind it. And that's exactly what this letter, this book is intended to do. It is intended, God intends it, for it to be a way for the church, through John, for the church to get a glimpse into what's really going on behind the scenes. A couple of weeks ago, I was watching a movie with my, uh, with my family called Men in Black. And in this movie, it's about this guy played by Will Smith. He's a cop in New York. And he discovers that there's this whole other world behind the world that he came to know. And that world is that aliens live on Earth. They're everywhere. They're all over the place. And there's a secret government agency that kind of like keeps them in check, right? And kind of 
keep some good relationships with them. And, you know, it's not super believable, but then they show that, like, Michael Jackson's one of them, and you're kind of like, okay, I could see it now. You know, I could see it now. And eventually, um, the movie is about this person seeing more and more how, like, what they thought the world was isn't what the world was, and there's this other one behind it. Well, the end of the movie, if you've seen it, then, uh, well, I hope you've seen it, because the end of the movie, um, what happens is just to kind of show even more that maybe there's more to the world than we could ever possibly imagine, um, they, they start to zoom out of New York, where the movie takes place, and they zoom out, they zoom out, they do that thing sometimes where you get to Earth, and then you see the moon, and you see the other planets, and then you see the sun, and then you pull out and pull out, pull out to the whole Milky Way galaxy, and all of a sudden, you discover that our galaxy is inside of a marble that a bunch of aliens are using to play marbles. That's basically how the movie ends, right? Just to mess with everybody's minds, right? Don't worry, that's not like a huge part of the plot of the movie. Um, kind of is, but anyway. If you haven't seen it by now, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to tell you. It's a great movie. This idea that there is like something else going on is not a new concept, and it's one that actually strikes a chord with everybody because it sort of feels that way to us. It feels as though that's kind of the way the world seems to work. Um, there are a number of, of fairly educated people who are, uh, believe that there's a good possibility that this world isn't even real, that we're living in a computer simulation uh, by some advanced civilization, and that it's just all kind of running its course. Why? Because there's this, these indications they see that there's more to what's going on than what we experience right in front of us. There's something else behind the world that we're a part of. We hear reports of, of UFOs that appear in the sky. They seem to be able to disappear instantly. And people interpret that as a, as a, a question of are there other dimensions and places where, that exist alongside ours, that beings can exist. There are, there are lots of uh, people that talk about theories uh, that there are multiple infinite number of universes that exist alongside one another. And if you were to somehow be able to pull the curtain back from one, you could see all these other possibilities and all these other things. The notion that the physical world that we experience with our five senses may not be all there is is not at all a unique idea. It's not even a fringe idea anymore. It's actually something I think we all ask. That's why we read about that so much in, in books and we see it so much in movies. Apocalyptic literature is a type of Jewish literature uh, written by people like John and, and the prophets that came before him, a long time before him, that talks about this concept, that there is a revealing. And this is what Revelation is intended to be for us. So uh, God comes to John, makes it very clear, this is the revelation, the unveiling, the revealing of what's really going on behind the scenes of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. God's desire in giving this to us is to show his servants, the church, the things that must soon take place, it says. It says how that got to us. He made it known to his angel, and then the angel makes it known to his servant John, who bears witness to the, world, to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So he's supposed to pass this message along. We also read here in the third verse of this first chapter um, that it is uh, something that is to be read and, and understood and heard 
to the church, in the church, amongst believers. There's a blessing to it. This is kind of like a, there's, there's, we're going to read throughout Revelation almost this other set of Beatitudes. If you know what the Beatitudes are, Jesus talks about them in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, those things, right? Um, well, there's a set of those in Revelation that we're going to kind of see as we come through this. And the first one we read about right here, blessed is the one, the person who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That's me. I'm blessed now. That's good because I'm reading him aloud. And blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written in it. Why? Because the time is near. Because something is coming, something is happening. And for us to hear these words and repeat them and say them to one another is going to be a blessing to us. Now, one of the important things of Revelation that we just have to understand is simply this, why it matters so much. Because Revelation, uh, it matters because without it, we would not know a thing. It's not something that we're going to automatically observe ourselves. It's not something that we're going to do a bunch of experiments on and discover through the scientific method. Revelation is showing someone something that they would have no other way of knowing. It's like an act of the grace of God that God chooses to reveal himself to us through his word. He chooses to reveal himself through Jesus Christ and the flesh. These are revelations from God. And this one is a huge one. He chooses to show himself to us. So when we read on, starting in verse 4 and reading the verse 5, we we continue on and read this. Um, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. So, this is written by John. Most believe that he's uh, the, this beloved apostle John. Why? Because there's really no introduction besides just John. And you've got to be a pretty big John to just be called John with no other introduction. He's, um, he's writing this letter to seven churches that are in Asia, and we'll find out what those churches are in just a moment. Now, where does this message come from? It comes from um, the one who is and who was and who is to come. The one who is and who was and who is to come. This is hearkening all the way back to Exodus, where God comes to Moses and says simply, I am. How do I explain myself? How do I tell you who this God is that's talking to you? It's simple. I am. Meaning I always have been. And I always will be. The one single most important reality is that God is. So it is this God who was, who is, and who is to come. And it also comes from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So there's a picture now of God sitting on a throne and the seven spirits before his throne. This is a reference back to Zechariah and some other passages in the Old Testament that indicate that the seven spirits around God are the, is his spirit, like the Holy Spirit. And so we have God the Father, we have the Holy Spirit, and then um, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. So we have this message coming to us from the triune God who God has always existed as three in one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bringing this message to John, the beloved apostle. We read on in verse 6. To him who loves us 
the second half of verse 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, a priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So what we read about in these verses is the single clearest main point of God's revelation to John. If we, if we take a single thing from it, it is what we read about here, this tremendously good news in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. This is Jesus. And every eye will see him. So he will not only be seen by those who believe in him. It's not something like that. Every eye will see him. Regardless of what a person believes or the state of their heart, every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, meaning the enemies of Jesus, those who pierced his side, those who were, who were, who were guilty of killing him and causing his death, even they will see him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. This is the message, this most central message of Revelation. We read on, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So God always has been and always will be. And Jesus, who has existed with him, is returning in the clouds And this is the thing that we are to know is coming, that we are to look for, we are to look forward to. There's something about this reality that is going to be important for us, right? God says, if I want my church to know anything in this time that they find themselves in, I want it to be this. Know that Jesus is returning, that he's coming back, and that I am always who I was, and I've never changed, and I'm unchanging. We read on in verse 9. And this is kind of the next section of John. So the first whole part of it up up till this point, the first eight verses, is really this introduction to um, Revelation. Uh, We read about who it's coming from, the triune God. We read about who it's going to, it's going to John, and it's intended for these seven churches. Now, he said uh, the seven churches... And that's going to matter. Uh, the number seven is going to matter a lot as we're in this study of Revelation. Seven is a number that pops up again and again and again. It's considered a number of completeness. It's taken from the seven days of creation all the way back in Genesis. That God created, um, but creation was not completed until the seventh day even when God rested. And so that number symbolizes completion. And so we're going to see it pop up again and again. And every time we see it, it's going to be telling us that something is complete or in its entirety. And that's going to matter a lot. So we have very good reason to believe that while this letter is written to the seven churches, that he didn't just randomly pick seven churches and say, those are the ones that I really love the most. 
He uses those churches as an example um, of the worldwide church, really. So, so in completion, the total church, the collective church, is who this thing is going to. And I believe God you know, knew giving this to John, something John probably didn't know, but God knew giving this to John that this would go on beyond those seven churches. And this would be a letter that would be read and needs to be understood and lived out and reflected upon and responded to by all of the church in the world. So now that we know who it's from and, and who it went to and some of those circumstances, now we get into really the first part of it, which starts in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, so this is the beginning of his letter to the churches, he needed to explain to them the context. This isn't just a guy writing to you. This is coming from God. But now he's getting into his actual message to the churches. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So we'll stop right there. So John has been persecuted for his faith. And in that, he says, I'm like you. We're in the same situation, a partner in the tribulation. So to be a believer uh, at this time was to be in tribulation because it was not easy to be a Christian in the Roman Empire at this time. And so he's saying to those that he's writing to, I'm your brother, I'm a partner in tribulation, the kingdom, the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus, that are in Jesus, because being a believer involved patient endurance. It was not easy and you, for the course of your life as a believer, are enduring in this thing. He was on the island called Patmos. Why? On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So, he's been banished to a Greek island. Not terrible, right? If you're going to get banished and persecuted, Greek island, not the worst, right? We even know that he's allowed visitors because he's able to give this message to them. And so, okay, it could be worse, but... Uh, we'll focus on the fact that he's there for a specific reason. Because he's being persecuted. Why? Because he's been preaching the gospel, because he's been proclaiming the truth of Jesus, and in the Roman Empire, that is not something that they want happening. So he has been sent to this island for persecution, being persecuted for the faith. He knows what these people are going through. He understands the circumstances that they find themselves in. And in verse 10, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So what we begin to hear is the circumstances around Paul receiving this revelation from God. He's in the spirit. He's uh, on this Greek island. It's the Lord's day. And he hears a voice behind him like a trumpet. Now, does that voice sound like a trumpet? Probably not. That voice is loud and clear and obviously gets his attention as if someone were behind you with a trumpet, okay? Okay. I have an 11-year-old learning saxophone in my house right now, and I can tell you that when someone's behind you with a trumpet and they blow it, it gets your attention and you turn around. So he's beginning to use imagery. He's beginning to use metaphor and symbolism as he even tries to describe and begins trying to describe what in the world 
he has experienced here. It's been so incredible and so crazy. He says, so a voice like a trumpet gets my attention, calls to me, and says this, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And he gives them the seven churches to send it to. So the first section after this of Revelation, and we're going to be in for a little while, is going to be the letters to those churches. Now, that's usually the part that churches preach on and the part that we're familiar with, and then after that, it starts to get crazy, and we go, I give up. And so we're going to continue on past that because that's where some incredibly important stuff is. We tend to believe that the letters to the churches are applicable to us, and the rest of the stuff probably isn't, which isn't true. So he's given uh, this charge to write this to these churches, and we know that because he picks seven churches, and the seven is the number of completion, and we'll see that again and again in Revelation, that it's intended to go to all the churches, really. It's intended to be um, describing what's going on with all the churches. John writes to these churches because they're living in persecution. God chooses to use someone who himself has been persecuted, knowing that the people will hear it from him. Well, he's writing to these churches that are living in a pretty difficult time, knowing that it's only going to get harder for them before it ever gets easier to, call, to be called a Christian in the Roman Empire. So we go on and read in verse 12, that I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Wow. Probably wondering if he should have really turned around, right? I mean, you want to talk about turning around and finding something you don't expect to find, okay? This is what John finds when he turns around, is this. He sees seven golden lampstands. In the midst of them is, is one like a son of man. And then he describes him. Now, we're beginning to see how symbolism and metaphor are going to work in Revelation, because he begins describing Jesus, and he's like, how do I possibly describe this thing to them? And so he just starts grasping for whatever he can. And, and he describes his eyes as being like fire. He doesn't say they are on fire. He says they're like fire. His feet, like bronze, have been polished. They're not actually that. They're like that. He's trying to describe things the best way that he knows how. He says things like, uh, there is a sword, um, and, uh, and that's kind of a big deal. He says he's, he's got these lampstands. He's clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. He looks nice. The hairs of his head are white like snow. Sorry, we haven't gotten to the sword yet. We'll get to the sword. It'll get even crazier. This is going to happen a lot, okay? I've been like immersed in Revelation. I'm going to start dreaming about it, and you guys will hear about that. I know it's going to happen. How does it not happen, right, when all you do is read this all day? Um, if we continue on, we read this about the one, the Son of Man who comes. In his right hand, he held seven stars. How does that even work? How do you hold seven stars in your right hand? He was doing that. At least to the best that John can describe, that's what he was doing. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So this is the part for me 
where you start to lose me, okay? I can kind of get a mental image of this. I can kind of wrap my brain around it. And now we've got a guy with a sword coming out of his mouth, okay? You've now lost me, okay? This has gotten to where those, those, those crazy pictures that we've all seen where people have like, okay, I'm going to draw this thing out. I'm going to paint this thing realistically. And then as they do it, you're like, yikes. Uh, I don't know how to even handle that right now. Okay, well, Scripture is spoken of um, elsewhere in the New Testament as being like a two-edged sword. And out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword. Do you see the connections that we're beginning to see here? Do you see how John is describing something that he sees physically that seems really weird, and it makes sense when we understand it in context with the rest of Scripture, right? We understand what these seven spirits are. How? By looking back at the prophets that came before. Some of the other apocalyptic literature, like in Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, things like that, it makes sense when we look at it within the context of other things that Scripture tells us about God and about Jesus and about his kingdom. It's as though that is going to be the key for us to really understanding this the best that we can. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So he had to put his little like eclipse glasses on, basically, in order to see his face. It's shining like the sun. It's so bright. Well, so what we see here, and I think before we go on, just to, to point, at, point this out, even though I kind of alluded to it already, is that as we, as we work our way through Revelation, we're going to be presented with a lot of stuff that we're going to have to try to figure out how to make sense of this stuff. And the way that we do that is to understand when is it literal when is it a metaphor? When is it a symbol for something else? But the key to being able to do that, above any other resource that we can be given, is going to be Scripture itself. Because John is writing, and clearly what we'll see is that his revelation is intended to be understood when, when, when compared to the rest of Scripture. It's like it really was written and designed and given to us to be the end of this book, the Holy Scripture that God has given to us in Revelation, so that we can look backwards as we interpret it and that we can see the connections that it makes to so many parts of both the Old and the New Testament, the gospel and ministry of Jesus, the words of the prophets, other apocalyptic literature, things from the church fathers, stuff like that, and the fathers of the faith, God's people, the Israelites. So there's going to be a place where we understand how symbolism, allegory, those things are going to work. He goes on and says this in verse 17. Is it in here? Yeah. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. He fell at his feet as though dead. This is actually something that we read about elsewhere in the Bible. When you are encountering something like this, when you are encountering God, uh, the only real right response when you get any sense of who this is or what this is, is to like fall down completely. He says like he was dead. Just say, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. I've got no response to this. I'm not worthy to be in your presence is really the way it seems uh, the person with the right heart is going to respond. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. 
and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Many, many people have died. Jesus is the only one who was truly resurrected and lives on now. We even read about someone who was people who were resurrected in the New Testament who were dead, people that Jesus brought back to life, but those people died again. Jesus was alive and is alive still, and he speaks to John alive, saying to him, I have the keys to death in Hades. And then here we come to the end of chapter 1, what we're going to look at today. Write, therefore, the things you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Hey, look at that. We got an answer. He explained one. That's good. That's a freebie. That's great. There are points when he's going to explain what these things are. Uh, because we would not know what these things are. Now, there are other references to the church being a lampstand, being a lamp, giving light to the world. And so he's being very clear, saying, I stand here in the midst of these churches which um, give light to the world, and these stars are the angels of the seven. So Jesus is explaining some of what he's seeing, and he's going to explain more, but there's going to be other things that are not going to be clearly explained. So we come to the end of this whole first chapter, and we, we ask ourselves, so, so how do we really approach something like this, right? There have historically been a variety of ways that people have tried to interpret Revelation. There's like uh, different ways that people will ultimately seek to interpret it. And you can kind of put those on a spectrum, Okay, and um, the spectrum on one end of the extreme is that all of Revelation is just an allegory. It's all just kind of uh, uh, there as a symbol of things that have already happened. Kind of on the farthest end of the spectrum of this, you would say that what we'll read about in Revelation is really telling us about the fall of, of, of Jerusalem, about, about things that have already happened, about the fall of Rome, about things that have already happened in the past, and we're reading stuff that basically all has already taken place. And that's kind of an allegory for things that happen within the church and the Roman Empire and stuff like that, and that's what this all is. That's, that's kind of one far end of the spectrum. But the other far end of the spectrum that we would find ourselves on looking to interpret Revelation the accurate way would be one of, I think the best way to call it would be decoding, okay? It goes sort of beyond literal because we believe the Bible is true and seek to interpret it literally, but there is a degree to which some will go to an extreme even of seeking to decode every individual detail in Revelation, believing that that is how it was, it was given to us for the purpose of doing that. So within our job in that instance would be to seek to find what each and every one of these things mean, not just looking in the Bible, but looking really in the world around us, in the newspapers and things that are happening today. So you have one end of the extreme, which says this all happened and it's kind of done and it's just a thing to think about. And then you have this other far end of the extreme that says this stuff is unfolding sort of chronologically in order 
And we are to decode each and every aspect of it in order to be truly prepared for it to happen. And you, you may know where I'm going with this here, okay? You've got this extreme, and you've got this extreme. And what we're going to find is that the, the true understanding of Revelation is going to come somewhere in the middle of these things. There are things that we will read about that are not literally true. There are things that we will read about that we are not intended to decode in order to understand them. But there are also things that we'll read about because they will be metaphors. They will be symbols for other things. What we'll also come to find after we get through these letters is we'll get several series of things that are going to happen. Uh, we'll, we'll read about, bowl, about scrolls and seals and bowls and all kinds of things that happen. They happen in groups of seven much of the time because seven is completion and completeness. And we'll, we'll read about things again and again and again. Now, if things were chronologically supposed to be laid out and we were supposed to be able to see them unfold in order in the way that somebody on this end of the spectrum would, then you would look at some of these things that happened and say, well, then um, that would be, that would say, that would tell us that, like, this is already over. Jesus has already returned because we just read about it and, uh, and, and it happened, like, halfway through the book, Right? Uh, but one of the things that we have to understand about the way that this works is there's a cyclical nature. There's kind of a reiterating of things that happen several times. Um, there's a technical word for this. It's recapitulation. Isn't that a cool word? Basically just means like to go back and repeat something in a new way, in a different way. I think the best way to think about this that I've heard that's really helpful to me is the way that um, if you watch sports something will get replayed again and again and again from a different angle. I've been watching a lot of football right now, and um, football is kind of known for this, right? Like you've got too many things to watch on the field at any given time to, to be able to see everything. And so what will happen is there will be a play, and it will be a big play, and then they will go back, and what will they do? They'll show you that thing that happened from this angle, from this angle, from this angle. I remember watching a play a couple of weeks ago where they were just replaying the same thing over and over again, trying to see if the guy was down with the ball or whether he wasn't down with the ball. And they're playing this, they're winding it, and it's his body, and he's going down, and he's coming up, and he's going down, and he's coming up, and they're looking at it, and they're looking at it, and the, the, you know, referee's out there with the thing, you know, and he's looking into it, and he's, like, reviewing it, and the guy on the TV is saying, like, okay, so what you're going to see here is you're going to see an elbow, and you're going to see a cheek. You're going to see an elbow and a cheek, and you're going to see them touch, and you're going to, and that's what we're trying to decide right now is, are they touching? Is it touching? Is there contact on the ground? Back and forth, back and forth. Cut to the next camera angle. This is something we're very familiar with. When there's something significant, we'll often get it from different perspectives. So what we'll see in Revelation is we're going to see things happen, and then we're going to see them kind of describe, God described to John in this Revelation, that same thing happening from kind of a different angle, from kind of a different perspective. And the idea is that it's going to give a full picture of what's happening. A good, way, a good way that I've heard Revelation described, and it's kind of how we're going to see it here, is rather than see it as a puzzle book to be decoded, it is more of a picture book. It is a book of these vivid images that John is trying to communicate in a way that can be perceived by his audience. And our goal is to look at it and figure out the right distance from it. Uh, if you've ever been to a movie and you get there late and you have to sit in the front row, okay, you know how hard it is to take in something when you're this close to it, right? And you're supposed to be this far away, okay? 
So again, when you look at the ends of the spectrum, right, what we're going to not do is we're not going to be so far away from it that we just kind of go like, oh, it's just this like poetry thing that we read and then that's it. It's kind of it's something nice and interesting and crazy to read about. Maybe paint some paintings of it and that'll be cool, right? Do some Halloween costumes based on this stuff maybe and that'll be cool. But we also are not supposed to pull it right up to our eyes and stare at it like I used to stare at the TV when my parents would yell at me and just sit there with my face glued to the glass and see it from that close. Because when we do that, we're so focused on each pixel, each detail, we miss the actual significance of what's happening. We don't get a full picture of it, which is what we're attempting to do. There is a cyclical nature to God's revelation. He replays it here in Revelation again and again. But the most important thing to us as we look at it and we, and we kind of seek to study it moving forward is going to be the question of what is the purpose of this book? What is the point of this revelation that God gives to John? The purpose of Revelation is this. The reason that he gives this to John, to give to the churches, to pass on to us in a time of persecution is to encourage the persecuted church to do three things, to persevere, to resist, and worship. This is the purpose of Revelation. God chooses to give us a glimpse of what is going on behind the curtain of this world. Why does he do that? He does it to encourage a persecuted church, a church living in a difficult time, knowing that the church will continue to live in difficult times. And his goal is to encourage the church to do three things, to persevere, to resist, and most importantly, I think, to worship. It is intended to help us persevere, to keep going. Each day, every day, take it one day at a time, to continue to pursue Jesus and know that as hard as it is to be a believer in this world today, that this will end in victory. That he will be victorious and those who are in him will experience that victory. And when it gets hard, persevere. Keep going. Stick with it. Continue to follow Jesus because you know that it will turn out well in the end. Persecution will be painful. Persecution will be costly. But keep going. Don't give up. The temptation that a believer will feel will be to stop, to quit, to become lukewarm, to just sort of follow an easy life, or to abandon their faith altogether. Although usually it's not quite that dramatic. And it wasn't at this time either, believe it or not. This is intended to help the church persevere. God knew that his church needed to see this glimpse in order to be able to continue moving forward and persevering. To help them not only persevere, but to resist. To resist what? To resist the Roman Empire. This huge empire that was persecuting them. Jesus is calling the church to resist a very real and present danger, which is... Two things, persecution and assimilation 
under the Roman Empire. So the persecution of the Roman Empire was aimed at Christians because they chose not to engage in that empire on the level that everyone else did. They didn't bow down to Roman gods. They weren't a part of much of what was going on in the city and in this empire because they saw it as being tainted by these idols and being unhealthy. They saw it as being a compromise to their Christian life and their Christian witness. And so the encouragement and the challenge is to resist that to actually resist it and to know that to be a believer living in that empire is going to involve a certain element of resistance to this other kingdom. So much of what we see about in Revelation will be the most vivid way that God could show as big and as powerful as you think the kingdoms of this world are, they're nothing compared to my kingdom. He'll eventually show us what the kings of this world will do in response to him, what the institutions of this world will do when confronted with his kingdom when coming in its glory. And we will see and need to be reminded that as powerful and huge as these empires are, these institutions are, these governments are, that they pale in comparison to the kingdom of God that we're a part of. So resist the temptation to just be folded into this other empire. Resist it. Now, there were two things that a person was tempted to do when living as a Christian in this time. The first was to fold under persecution, which was the evils of Roman rule. The worst things that Roman had to offer, it would throw at Christians and say, give up being a Christian or these bad things are going to happen to you. And many would be unable to resist, would abandon their faith and would say, fine, I will bow down to these other gods because I can't handle this punishment, this persecution. But there was another thing that the Roman Empire did to Christians. And it wasn't the kind of persecution that you would think. It was the pressure to assimilate into Roman society. And that was an even stronger pressure, I think. Don't give in to the Roman way of life. Don't give in to the ways of this empire, to the ways of this huge kingdom of the earth. The attractiveness of Roman society and comfort were a huge temptation to Christians. And so don't give in. Don't assimilate. Don't say, okay, fine. It would just be easier and more enjoyable and pleasurable to just live as a Roman rather than live as a part of the kingdom of God. And the last thing is to worship to encourage a persecuted church to persevere, resist, and to continue to worship their God. As often as you can, respond to the all-powerful God through worship. Give him the glory that he is due. This is going to put the whole world in perspective as you do it. It will put your life into perspective as you do it. We worship physically here in church. We worship as we sing and we worship as we're in God's word. But guess what? Over time, the music is going to change over the years. You will change as a person over the years. Sometimes worship will be an emotional connection between you and God that feels incredibly intimate. Sometimes worship will be a corporate thing that you do as an act of participating with a community of people to give God the glory that he is due. And that is just as much of an honor to him as when you feel like you are just right there connecting with God in your heart, like you're alone in a room with Jesus. Both are pleasing to the Lord. And we experience both probably at different times in our lives. 
Worship with God, though, wasn't ultimately just singing to him. It was placing him as the king of your life, giving him your loyalty and your submission. And how does he help us do this? He gives us a glimpse behind the curtain. He shows us the glory of his kingdom, and it's going to totally blow our minds. Worship is something that isn't as easy to do as we often think, and we take it for granted. And what we find as we look in Revelation and as we look back, we have the benefit of looking back at church history, is that most of the time the greatest enemies of the church weren't coming from the outside, but they were from within. It was the desire that people had to simply uh, assimilate, to become like the culture, and to walk away. Years ago, when the COVID pandemic broke out, there were so many Christians, so many of us, that were so upset at the idea that somebody would limit our ability to worship. Somebody would restrict our ability to worship, saying, no, we must continue, not be afraid of man. Now that we're far enough away from that time to look back and look at the real aftermath, do you know what we have come to see? We have come to see that that period of time that so many of us were worried that we were being forced to not worship was this big. And that what ultimately ended up hurting the church more was not that, but it was all of this time that record numbers of Christians simply stopped going to church. We just kind of fell out of the habit, got busy with other things. Or when COVID, you know, ended, then it was like, we need to be really careful about what we commit to now. That has had a much greater impact on the church in America than anything any government institution said we were not allowed to do. And this is why he is encouraging the church under persecution to, uh, to remember how big the kingdom of God is and also to uh, not assimilate, to not walk away, to not grow lukewarm in the midst of persecution. As we spend this time in this letter, in this book. And next week we begin looking at, at, at the first letter to the first church. We'll see not just letters to individual churches, but we'll see in these seven churches everything that needs to be addressed in the church globally addressed in these letters. The tendencies that we have, the things that are good, the things that are bad, the areas that are our strengths, the areas that are our weaknesses. We'll come to see incredible, crazy, mind-blowing stuff and do the best that we can to understand it in the context of the rest of Scripture. Looking backwards, before we decide that we're going to look forward and try to see what it predicts about what might be happening tomorrow or the next day or the next day. But the goal of it is very clear. And here's what's wonderful about it. The purpose of Revelation is to keep us encouraged. But the point of Revelation, the theme of Revelation, is why we're able to stay encouraged. How can we resist how can we continue to worship? How can we persevere? Simple. We know how it ends. God wins. This is the message. Jesus coming in glory, coming on the clouds. God wins. It does not feel that way to many Christians at any period of time in this world. We go, is God really in control? Does God really know what he's doing? Does God really love me? 
Is the church at all the way God wants the church to be? What matters is this, that God wins. And my hope is that as a church, as we spend like an extended period of time in this letter, that above all else, we walk away overwhelmed with the encouragement that comes from knowing that God wins. Amen? Let's pray.